For those about to work after staying up late to watch the Jets game, especially this guy right here who went to the game, Greg Mackling, you must be tired right now. Uh, more disappointed than tired, Brett. I really am. Uh, the win, you know, series win was there for the taking, uh, but leave it to uh, Coach Paul Maurice to put it all into perspective. I know this. I know that Pittsburgh lost tonight. Pretty good team. They learned all those lessons you're supposed to learn, killer instinct, all the words that'll come out today that we didn't get, and they lost. I know it's playoff hockey. So for all of the good things that they did last tonight, it wasn't their last game, we were a pretty good team. Probably should go seven games this series. Right? It's been back and forth, up and down, so it's probably right that it's going seven. There's lots of stuff that we didn't like. The idea that you're going to put your game out there and it's going to work every single night because you won the last one, well, then you'd, we'd have a whole bunch of teams going 16 and 0. There's lots of stuff that we could do better tonight. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that we look the way we want to look in game seven. That was obviously last night following the Jets' loss to Nashville Predators. The Jets had a chance to close out the regular season President Trophy winning. Nashville Predators, the crowd was as amped up as I've ever heard it. Timu Solani flew in for the game last night. Saw that, reinforcements. Yeah, that was pretty cool that he came up. Uh, a friend of mine came in from Vancouver for the game last night. Oh, nice. He's going home a little disappointed. The anticipation, I would say, could not have been greater. The disappointment may have equaled the anticipation after all, Brett, 23,000 people in the streets of Winnipeg, another 15,000-plus inside waiting to erupt. But get this, the Predators managed in three games in Winnipeg in this series to create 2 nothing, 3 nothing, and 4 nothing leads at some point in the three games. They held on to two of those three leads, clearly. But Captain Blake Wheeler commented on the fact that the home team has lost four out of the six games so far? You know, I, I think it's just one of those things I don't have a great answer for you. Um, you know, I, I don't want to um, take away from anything they've done or anything we've done on the road. Um, I just think it's just the way it's been, you know. Uh, they, they played a good game tonight, um, you know, got out to that lead, and it's just tough. It's just tough to to come back we just uh we just couldn't find a way to get that first one I, I think our belief was if we were able to get that first one we were going to get rolling and um you know come back in this game we just couldn't find a way to get the first one so based on what you've done there so far how do you feel about playing in that building in game seven? it's a i mean what a it's a great environment you know it's it's um it's uh almost as loud as you can get in the league um got a little trouble for that but it's a great environment you know like 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 we've said you know if you would have told me that we were going into nashville to play a game seven to go to the conference final before the season. We take that all day. Um, we have nothing to, but to be excited about that opportunity. I mean, um, great atmosphere, great building, great team, um, everything on the line. It's going to be a great night. Do you remember the first two games of the Winnipeg Jets season, Brett? They lost. I remember people were saying, fire the coach. Yeah, fire the coach. So after those first two games, if someone would have said to you, it's all good, we're going to go to play the Nashville Predators in Game 7 of the Central Division Final. I think every single Jets fan would have taken that. And sometimes it's not how you get there. Game 7, Thursday, Nashville. Uh, it's not Wednesday night, by the way, because Justin Timberlake is playing at Bridgestone Arena on Wednesday. 
And another thing for you to keep in mind, I'm already trying to turn things around to the positive. Okay. No team has lost or won two games in a row in this series. Oh, interesting. Win, win, back and forth, right? The Jets... uh, and the and the Predators alternating win. Seven o'clock start. Jets fans looking ahead before they even left the building last night with a collective prediction. Jets in seven. Wow. This was after the game? This was in the dying moments of last night's game. Wow. So... Good fans. Good fans. When you get shut out on home ice, essentially two home games in a row. That 2-1 game uh, in game four was essentially a shutout on home ice as well. So anyway, I know lots of people disappointed last night, but we would all have taken this scenario 19 times out of 19 at the beginning of the season. Thursday night, it's all on the line. Can the Jets win? Of course they can win. Are they favored to win? Probably not. But it'll be fun to see. It's been a great ride, and uh, hopefully it continues. would be great to be back at Bell MTS Play Saturday night against Vegas Golden Knights, game we, one of the Western Conference Final. We are getting some text messages from some, some, from some of our listener friends who are a little sad this morning. Don, who texted us at 204-780-6868, says, Okay, guys, make me laugh. <laughs> I feel like... I feel like Vince Vaughn and Wedding Crashers. <laughs> Make me a bicycle clown! <laughs> <laughs> great movie. Absolutely a great movie. 611 on 680 CJOB. We will discuss the Jets game further throughout the morning here on CJOB. Just watching footage on Global News Morning right now of lava just slowly making its way down the street in Kilauea, where residents of the Hawaiian community seeing the lava erupting from the volcano, oozing through cracks in the ground. The residents have been allowed to return briefly for a second day to check on their properties. Molten rock, toxic gas, and scalding steam pouring from new openings in the ground created by the eruptions. Lava has destroyed more than two dozen homes and resulted in evacuation orders for nearly 2,000 people. Overnight on the shift with Drex, ABC reporter Eliza Larson spoke about being on the ground to cover this story. You know, it has just been a whirlwind of an experience. Um, It started with, we were at the station on Oahu in Honolulu, uh, just watching, you know, social media and, you know, checking our phones, checking our emails. And then we heard that there was an eruption, um, that one of these fissures, as they call them, opened up and was spewing lava um, onto the streets and onto uh, this community. And so that kind of, you know, that gets the, that started the gears. We just got running. Um, they sent me right to the airport. We had actually planned on sending a crew there the next morning. Um, but, you know, that moment just kind of confirmed to us that we had to get over there. We had to talk to people. We had to see what was happening. So when I arrived Thursday night, you know, it was still a little uncertain what I would be able to find and what I'd be able to get. Um, you know, at that point, they had set up shelters for people who they were telling them to evacuate from their homes. Um, you know, it was just kind of chaotic. People were abandoning, you know, their belongings, their prized possessions, and even their pets in some circumstances, because it was just such a, you know, frantic moment to get out. Um, And so, you know, but then Friday, it just kind of became even more surreal because more and more of these fissures were opening up in, you know, as you were describing the footage that you saw, um, you know, of people's homes in the lava just coming across the road, 
burning cars, trees, you know, backyards, et cetera. It, it's been, it's incredible. Now for those residents briefly returning home, there were long lineups combined with residency checks. So the main roadway back into this um, community was just, it's a two-lane highway, essentially. And so the, um, you know, the traffic getting in, everyone wanted to rush to get in, but they just had to wait because the police, wanted to check everybody's identification, their driver's license. They didn't want people just going in there saying they were residents and, you know, allowing them to just kind of have a free-for-all with people's homes. Um, there were reports um, from residents of looters, you know, running around, breaking into people's homes. Um, you know, police hadn't given us an official count as to, um, you know, how many of those reports they had, but there were some people spotted, you know, rummaging through other people's properties. Um, and so I think the fear was that if you just allowed anybody in, they could, you know, take something. And so they, the, the reason why there was such a bottleneck effect on the highway is because the police took did a um, you know did a thorough check of everybody's identification. I think it's because of those looters that people are hesitant. The idea of somebody coming into your home when you've evacuated is why. The biggest reason preventing people from leaving in the first place. People just hate that idea. Officials say there are now 12 fissures in Lalani Estates where 35 structures have burnt down. You know, most of the residents we spoke to knew the risks. They love the area. It's gorgeous. Um, I think they were, you know, they were aware that they lived in an area that was prone to this kind of activity. Kilauea is one of the most active volcanoes in the world. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those risks that you make when you buy real estate um you know just it was just happened to be where they chose to be um you know this area has not you know has seen its um its lava flows before uh some of these residents say they you know they were actually in another part of this part of the big island um you know year about four years ago when another volcano eruption happened and they had to evacuate their homes then and moved to this part and it just you know it's deja vu um you know it's just that's part of the that's part of the culture there i guess you could say drex overnight on the shift with drex speaking with abc reporter eliza larson uh covering the story of the volcano in kilauea where residents were allowed to briefly return for a second day to check on their properties are you paying around the same for groceries as you did last year brett i i should pay more attention because, but it, it, the prices fluctuate so much. Like sometimes a romaine lettuce will be like a like a buck. Sometimes it's two fifty. Uh, it it's, it varies almost every time I go to the store. So it's hard to remember what it was last there year. There should be an app for that. According to Statistics Canada, prices actually went down overall during the winter. The economy is doing well, so it would make sense for the price of groceries to increase alongside. The rising tide of the economy. To explain why that is not happening, we are joined live on 680 CJOB by Sylvain Charlebois. He is professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University's Faculty of Agriculture. Sylvain, good morning to you, sir. Hey, good morning, and sorry about the Jets. Well, and and let, let, uh, let us say first sorry to our listeners. You may have, have yeah. heard, noticed, uh, well, actually, Sylvain, what's happening on our end, uh, and many of our listeners have probably noticed this, we have these digital voiceover internet phones, and sometimes when the phone call starts, you actually sound kind of like, uh, I don't know. Like, Scream. 
Yeah. The guy from Scream calling into a warn of something, some yeah. impending doom. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, some sort of a digital artifact. I know it makes us sell. It sounds kind of Mickey Mouse or whatever, so apologies for that. We're trying to figure it out. No problem. Uh, there you go. Now you sound normal. Sylvain, thank All right, I did say sorry about the Jets on behalf of Halifax. Well, thank you, Sylvain. We go. We have one more kick at the cat here Thursday night. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, I, I find it bizarre not only the correlation that you made with regard to the rising tide of the economy and rising prices elsewhere, certainly in terms of fuel, transportation, uh, you know, hydro in this province, and I'm guessing not much different in Nova Scotia and across the country, uh, all sorts of things. But, but grocery stores are offering more services now, like these pick and pay services, like delivery. So the the services are getting even better than they've been, but prices are, are sort of stagnant. That's right. Uh, well, if cash is not showing up at, uh, at your store, then you have to go uh, and run after the cash. And that's exactly what's going on. So you got the clicks and collects going on. You also have uh, well, Loblaw just announced last week that it's going nationwide with its delivery service, and I suspect that at some point Winnipeg will be uh, will be affected by that. Uh, overall, it's been a pretty good year for consumers because uh, on the one side, wages are actually going up nationwide, so we have more money to spend. And on the other hand, we're actually getting a break at the grocery store. It's costing less, except, of course, for those who do uh, love restaurants, at the restaurant you are paying way more, about 4% in total, so way more than the average inflation rate. But uh, when you look at the grocery store or grocery prices, it's actually way below uh, the average general inflation rate. Now, the headline here that you've written, Sylvain, the economy is doing well, so why can't Canadian grocers hike prices? Why, as a consumer, would I want this? (laughs) <laughs> you don't. <laughs> the problem, well, the, here's the thing. Grocers are, are just, it's, it's like surfing. You're just waiting for that wave to increase prices, and, and that wave is called inflation. Uh, once inflation hits, then you raise prices, and pay, people barely notice. But this time around, the landscape is really shifting because of the Amazon effect. And I would say that in in Winnipeg in particular, the marketplace is actually much more competitive than last year because you guys have seen some new grocery stores open, didn't you? Yeah, Save on Foods has come into Winnipeg in a big way. Yeah, exactly. So that's putting a lot of pressure on everyone else to keep prices down to to retain market shares. And so that's why uh, I suspect that Winnipeggers uh, actually are getting a huge break, perhaps even more so than everyone else in the country. Well, and actually an interesting thing about Save on Foods, I, I haven't been there yet. Greg, maybe you can confirm this, but uh, I've heard that Save on Foods, more so than other grocery stores, they have lots of pre-made food. Like you can walk in there mm-hmm. and just order, just grab food like you've been to a restaurant and go home. So, Sylvain, is that one of the things that grocery yeah. stores need to do to try to, to woo people in is to have more options like ready-to-go food that you can just bring home and eat? There are, there are two main segments that are really growing right now. One is the ready-to-eat segment, as you just mentioned, so the grab-and-go kind of products. Uh, they're fresh, ready-to-go. You can basically eat uh, wherever, and sometimes they actually have tables you can actually, which allows you to eat on-site. 
that's the one segment that's growing. The other one is the ready-to-cook segment. And I'm sure that in Winnipeg, there, you've seen some, uh, some small companies popping up. Uh, basically, you order online, and they ship to you at home uh, all the ingredients you need to cook and look, at a, look like a professional chef. That segment is really growing as well. The, the price point is very high, though. It's anywhere between $10 to $12 a meal. But still, more and more people, professionals that don't have much time, order these meal kits uh, to be delivered at home. So with the, the advent of more online shopping, more delivery services, these gourmet, uh, if not uh, niche services like the ones you just outlined, do you anticipate the number of grocery stores changing, uh, either decreasing or increasing in Canada over the next year, Sylvain? <laughs> do, you, do you actually have any idea how many uh, food retail stores we have in Canada right now? Only because you told me in the article that you sent me, and I, and I was absolutely shocked. Why don't you share it with our listeners? Yeah, it's about 24,000. And so that's a, that's a, it's actually five percent more than just a couple of years ago. They are so people are talking about online shopping, but there actually are more bricks and mortar stores out there. And at some point, something has got to give. So I wouldn't be surprised to see because of the lack of inflation, because of the co- level of competitiveness everywhere in the country. I wouldn't be surprised to see some uh, store closures down the down down the road. Now, Sylvain, here's one for you. Maybe this is unrelated, but why do prices vary so wildly from store to store sometimes? For example, I use a block of cheddar cheese. I can go to one store and buy that cheese for, say, $7 on sale and find that same exact block of cheese at another store for, like, 16 bucks. It just does, Why would I ever buy it from the store that sells it for more? Well, so sometimes you're, you're dealing with lost leaders. So uh, if you actually see a block of cheese at six bucks, I would say that this that grocer is losing money selling you cheese. I would argue that, and they're actually losing money selling you cheese because they want you to buy other products that are uh, that that actually they make more money with. Margins are much higher, and that's really the trick. So yeah, you just have to be careful when you shop around. Sometimes you actually do have access to good deals, but right next to that product, margins are very high. They don't want to make money out of you. That's the only time I get on my hands and knees in a grocery store, is to sift through the bundle or the or the cooler of cheese when they go <laughs> all you know all of these type of cheese six ninety nine, and then I'm looking for the most expensive one, the one with the most expensive original price down to the penny. Ah, oh, no, I can I can find one bigger than that, no problem at all. Sylvain, I mean, are these uh, loss leaders becoming more valuable based on our lack of time, and that they know that if we buy the $3.49 gallon of milk or a four-liter jug of milk and uh, Brett's $6 cheese and the on-sale, we'll say, loaf of bread that we'll just buy everything at that store because we don't have time to cherry-pick the deals. Well, exactly. I mean, savvy shoppers will know that Saturday is probably the worst time to do, to, uh, to do your shopping if you want to save some money. I mean, uh, essentially, that's how it goes, and, and grocers know that. I, I would see one day, I'd say within 10 years from now, you'll actually see real-time price fixing going on. Within the hour, you could actually see a variety of products changing prices due to uh, either demand fluctuating or supplies fluctuating, depending. So let's say, for example, you've got a stack of carrot in the, in the inventory you want to get rid of. 
Well, a grocer may decide uh, from 9 to 10 in the morning to sell these carrots half price, but you need to know that as a consumer. And and you'll probably wear a watch, like a Fitbit watch, telling you that, uh, I don't know, some grocer (laughs) in Winnipeg is selling you these carrots half price. So when they when they start when they start installing digital pricing uh, displays on the front of the of the of the shelves, you'll know that we're on the verge of uh, real time pricing like that. Just like gas, just like gas. <laughs> Thanks, Sylvain. We always appreciate your time and your insight. Uh, great to catch up with you. No problem. Take care. Sylvain Charlebois, professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University's Faculty of Agriculture. Mackling and McGarry in the morning, Tuesday morning. Hope you're all doing well as you get your day underway. Or maybe it's the end of your day if you worked overnight. Uh, have a good sleep. We'll talk to you later. Behind the Glass, Jerry's here along with Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and Chandelier Vidal who've joined us in studio to talk about water conservation. The town of Niverville issued an urgent public notice yesterday as a result of recent excessive lawn watering due to extreme dry weather conditions and increasing temperatures. The town's water reservoir is at an extremely low level. Connection to the new water source is still weeks away. Clearly, they've got a new water source uh, in the offing. In the interim, effective immediately and until further notice, Neverville residents who receive their water from the Spruce Drive Water Treatment Plant are not permitted to water their lawns or gardens. Crazy. This yeah. is something we're not used to in this part of the world. No, I mean, uh, again, April was one of the driest on record, 1.7 millimeters. Typically, we get 30 millimeters of rain in April. This is as dry as I think I have ever seen it. So today we're having coffee, talking, water conservation. Are you even aware of how much water you use? And if so, what do you do to try to conserve H2O? So uh, where should we start here? Jeff Braun, let's start Ooh. with you. You are not a you're not a, a house owner, but no. you are a homeowner. Yeah, but I don't need I don't use that much water as far as like having to water the lawn or I've got some bushes that I sometimes throw some water on if I ever think about them, which is very rarely. Okay. And other than that, <laughs> I'm pretty brief with my showers. We went over that one day for some reason, and uh, yeah, that's about it. Save water, drink beer. Yeah. Oh, the good philosophy, Jerry. Sage advice. <laughs> Well, you're, <laughs> but you're a gardener, right? Like you like to yeah. get in the garden and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you use rainwater or do you use the hose? Like what no, do you do? I, I do use the hose, but I don't usually put the sprinkler out. I'll actually just spot water the plants that need the watering with, with the hose. So I'll stand there and just hit them with as much as they need. And that's about it. And, and plants really don't need that much as long as you give it to them where they need it. What about when, uh, if it gets really hot in the summer, middle of summer, and mm-hmm. there's no rain? Like, I remember, for example, there was, I think it would have been 2011, 2012, I remember. I didn't. I don't think I cut my, because this is back when I owned a house, I didn't cut my grass. The month of August, probably? July and August. Uh, it, I think halfway through September, I finally cut it again, because we got almost no rain, and it was bone dry. I didn't, and I also didn't water it, because I'm a terrible homeowner. Well, even last year, my lawn, I did not mow it from uh, the begin. I think I mowed it at the beginning of August, and then I didn't mow it again until I was getting it ready for the winter. Yeah, it was dry last uh, yes, last August, yeah. right, uh, Kelly? So yeah. do, you, do you water your lawn? Do you, do you not do it for a particular reason? Um, we have quite a bit uh, of uh, foliage in our yard, so 
that's one of the most relaxing times of my day. And I'll usually try to go out a little, you know, just before bedtime type of thing because it makes no sense to water in the middle of the day. That's wasting water. So uh, we try to do everything by hand. We'll we'll throw the sprinkler on from time to time. But, you know, that, that water bill <laughs> every three months is, uh, is a stark reminder to uh, conserve uh, uh, even from that perspective. But we try to be good environmentally as well with our use of water. Well, and the thing is, even if you're putting it on the lawn, you still pay that sewer charge. Yeah. So, right, whether, yeah, you're, whether the, you're using it within your home yes, and you're yeah. utilizing the sewer system or not, you're paying that sewer charge, which is almost as much as the water itself. My, my sewer charge is usually more than my water. Wow. Yeah. My, my wife will often say to me, though, you know, all the water you waste, bless you, uh, GMAC, because uh, I have this bad habit of rinsing dishes before I put them in the dishwasher. You need a better dishwasher. Well, that, that's, no. that's actually a bad thing to do, especially with the new dishwashers, because they have sensors on them that sense how dirty Quiet! your dishes are. <laughs> and if you're rinsing the dirt off beforehand, then the sensors aren't working properly, and you're going to get a worse uh, clean in your dishwasher. Shanley Vidal, we've got about a minute left here. You're also a homeowner. What do you do with uh, your when it comes to the watering situation for your lawn? Like, like Jerry, I do the spot watering. I don't use a sprinkler at all because sprinklers actually really annoy me, especially when you're walking down the sidewalk and you happen to get sprayed. So I water when they need it. I don't water every day. I don't water. Um, I don't go to my weight water. So basically just when they need it. Okay. The irony of all this in conserving water, because the in Winnipeg, they need a certain amount of income to service the water, the water and sewer system here in Winnipeg. So in spite of the fact that a lot of us are getting way better at using less water, we're still paying the same amount because they need the same amount of fixed revenue every single quarter from us. So uh, try as we might, we think we're doing the right thing, but we're actually paying more per droplet of water. It's time now for Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. Today we're joined by a new addition to the Blue Bombers roster, quarterback Chris Strevler. Here's a little bit of background on Chris. He came out and he put it all together on the field in terms of, you know, statistically one of the best seasons, well, probably the best season in the history of USD football as he accounts for 4,800 plus yards. That's a USD record and a Missouri Valley Football Conference record. Um, and he also set the single season mark for passing yards in a season. Uh, MVFC Player of the Year on the offensive side. And then, of course, a finalist for the Walter Payton Award, which goes to the, the top offensive player in the country. So. Uh, you know, the numbers really speak for themselves, but, but Chris really put it all together this year and had uh, a season that no one that supports Kyle football is going to forget for a long, long time. Chris Traveler joins us now on 680 CGOB. Welcome to Winnipeg, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Well, uh, some impressive credentials at the University of South Dakota. Talk about your time uh, down, uh, down in South Dakota, if you would. With the Coyotes, correct? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah, the USD Coyotes. Um, not to be confused with the Jackrabbits. That's our rival. Um, but yeah, it was it was a great time. I mean, when I when I left Minnesota, I was really just looking for an opportunity to compete somewhere um, and eventually earn the earn the starting job. Uh, that uh, my first year there in camp and played and got to develop. And then this past season, we were able to do some really good things. I mean, we went eight and five. Uh, we were the first team ever to 
to uh, have a winning season as a Division One program. We we made the playoffs and won a playoff game, first time ever in the school's history. So, you know, to be a part of a team like that that just did some did some great things and and you know some first time things for the for the school was uh, was really fun. Now, Chris, I'm glad you glad you brought it up. You referenced your time in Minnesota. Uh, for those who don't know, Chris, before he played for University of South Dakota, played for the Minnesota Golden Gophers, uh, but you were not a quarterback while you were there. Is that correct? So I was a quarterback for my first two years, and then I had switched over to uh, receiver. Why did you switch to receiver? Um, th- there was already a pretty established starter, and you know it had been made clear to me that I was going to remain the backup, and I just wanted to get on the field any way possible. So I was playing, you know, I was playing receiver, I was playing some running back, playing some tight end, playing some fullback, doing special team stuff. So I was really just trying to get on the field any way possible. Chris Trevler sounds as though he's playing and simply a football player, and I think that uh, that uh, holds you in good stead with a, a lot of folks, including the management uh, that decided to sign you here in Winnipeg. You've got uh, some definite mobility, Chris. Talk about your ability and and uh, when you like to run the ball. Yeah, I mean, well, first and foremost, I mean, being a quarterback, I mean, throwing the ball is your first priority, right? I mean, you don't want to run if you don't have to, save your body. But, you know, if necessary, I'm, I'm more than willing to, to take off and run. I mean, had quite a few carries this past season. And, you know, at, at every level I've played, I've always incorporated running into my game. But, you know, first and foremost, I like to I like to throw the ball when I can. Um, but there's definitely uh, some opportune times when, when running the football can be very effective as well. So had you stayed in Minnesota, because you did have a bit of a crossroads there to face where you stayed in Minnesota just to, like, you could stay there and then hope for an opportunity, or you, you, you found an opportunity in South Dakota, but had you not jumped to the Coyotes, where, how do you think that all would have played out for you? Um, you know, I probably, had I stayed at Minnesota, I probably would have been a receiver, um, maybe got a chance to play. Um, you know, in, in a reserve type of role my junior year. And then my senior year, maybe got a chance to start. Uh, I would have been a special teams type guy. Um, but, I mean, that probably would have been it. And after my time there ended, I probably wouldn't have had any opportunity to play the next level or anything like that. So, you know, going to USD was probably one of the best decisions I ever could have made in terms of uh, in terms of my football career. So, you know, I, I couldn't be happier I made the switch, but I'm also very, very thankful and grateful for the time that I did have in Minnesota. So mobility is a, a key asset in Canadian football at quarterback in particular. At 6'2", you've got the height to uh, see the things you, you need to see. How did you and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers meet one another? Yeah, so uh, Coach Coach Lopolis was kind of talking to me almost immediately after the season ended, um, and he just reached out and let me know I was on the neg list, and um, you know, I really didn't know anything about it when he first reached out to me, but he kind of explained the whole process. And, you know, we had just kind of been in touch for, for these few months leading up to the NFL draft and all that stuff. And then, you know, once all that went down and, um, you know, I kind of weighed my options, I, I really felt like going up to Winnipeg was a was a really great opportunity that I that I couldn't pass up and I was very excited about. So uh, we were able to, to get a get a contract signed and, uh, and all that. So it's been a kind of a, a, a process in the making here for a couple months ever since my season ended. Now, over in recent weeks on this show, Chris, we've spoken to a number of Blue Bombers from the United States who admitted when they uh, when they first heard of Winnipeg or the Blue Bombers, it was the first time they had heard of Winnipeg. What did you know about yeah. Manitoba before you uh, were brought up here for a tryout? You know, I didn't I didn't know much about Manitoba or Winnipeg, but I did know that it 
you know, was just north of North Dakota. So, you know, pretty much if you leave Vermilion, which is where South Dakota is, you could just take Highway 29 pretty much straight north and get there. Um, and then I also uh, I went to Minnesota with Drew Waltarski, a uh, receiver on the team, and then also uh, Phil Nelson, another quarterback on the team, and I spent some time in Minnesota together. So I knew that they had spent, had been on the team, and um, but that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge of Winnipeg and the Blue Bombers and Manitoba as a whole. Well, you know, we've uh, the Blue Bombers have signed a couple of local products uh, to bring them in to join Andrew Harris, who, who I'm sure has uh, already uh, told you what a great place Winnipeg is to play and, and to live. And I think that Blue Bomber fans get frustrated when they hear about players that play in North Dakota, in Minnesota, in South Dakota, that end up in Edmonton or Calgary or Vancouver, because it's sort of our own backyard. So it's uh, great to see right. you in blue and gold, Chris, and... Uh, can't wait to yeah. see you get ready for uh, training camp and see you play in some exhibition games here coming up in just a couple of weeks already. Well, yeah, I know it's coming up fast, but uh, you know I couldn't be more excited to be to be in that blue and gold. So I'm just excited about the opportunity. Now, Chris, uh, before we let you go here, one of the things that I noticed uh, watching some uh, videos of you this morning, and Greg referenced your height, 6'2", you're 220, so you're also a big guy, or in particular, you're a muscular guy. And with that short hair and uh, your beard, you kind of look like Chris Hemsworth. So if football doesn't work, do you, do you ever think about taking up the mantle of the God of Thunder in the Avengers? <laughs> that's crazy. That you're the second person in two days to say that, and I've never really gotten that before. So I don't know what's going on, but hey, you know, if football doesn't work out. Maybe I could find a career doing something else. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. Okay. Well, hey, Chris. Hey, thanks for joining us. We hope to speak to you again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Best right. of luck, Chris, in training camp. Twenty-four days, eleven hours, forty-five minutes to be exact until the Bombers and the Eskimos kick off in the inaugural or the first preseason game of 2018 at IGF. That was Chris Strebler we just spoke with. Quarterback, he has signed a free agent contract with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. As we mentioned earlier this morning and in the news at the top of the bottom of the hour, the town of Niverville is in the midst of a water shortage. They say this is because of too many people watering their lawns with all the dry conditions, lack of rain, and and now the heat. New source of water will be available in a few weeks. In the meantime, the town has banned residents who get their water from the Spruce Drive Water Treatment Plant from watering their lawns and gardens. For southern Manitoba, the heat just does not to be seem to be letting up quite yet. And there's no rain in sight in the forecast, so we thought we would explore some ways to cut down on outdoor water usage. Joining us live on 680 CJOB this morning is Tim Shanks, Manager of Water Services for the City of Winnipeg. Mr. Shanks, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. When you see a neighboring community taking action like Niverville has, does it uh, put your radar up? Well, uh, yes, but, uh, you know, our, our radar is always up in terms of uh, managing water demands and uh, keeping uh, water demands in the city at a manageable level. So when you see a situation like this where Niverville has had to have this ban on uh, lawn watering, um, is what would it take for that kind of a situation to develop here in the city of Winnipeg? to instruct the citizens to stop watering their grass? Well, well, we're, we're 
quite a long ways from from water rationing in the city of Winnipeg. And uh, you know, part of that, uh, like we do have a very uh, a very extensive water supply system, um, as you probably know. Uh, you know, we use uh, Shoal Lake as our water source, and uh, the, the Shoal Lake uh, water, like, is an enormous amount of water in Shoal Lake, and uh, and that's really not not like it's not that we have this large uh, amount of water and we just don't uh, we don't care how much water we use. We certainly do care how much water we use um, because lake water isn't what comes out of your taps. It, it takes a lot of uh, work and resources and uh, effort to keep your water on. So the city's had a, a long-term uh, water conservation program where we encourage uh, citizens to use less water. Uh, we have a toilet rebate program to install low-flow toilets in people's homes. Uh, and, and basically, we've been able to manage demands quite successfully. So when you talk about Shoal Lake, uh, there are also uh, reservoirs uh, uh, throughout the city that, that, that hold water in a situation where you have to shut down the aqueduct for repair, etc. Et so I think what I'm getting is it would take a lot for us to to have a, a ban on lawn watering in the city of Winnipeg. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's certainly not impossible, but it's uh, it's very unlikely. So as far as watering the grass goes then, uh, can you offer us any tips as to, like right now everything's so dry, is there a kind of the best practice that we should be looking at when we want to water the lawn? Well, specific to watering lawns, like if you really need to water your lawn, uh, you should water during the cooler parts of the day, like uh, early in the morning, to be more effective at watering. Um, obviously, you should try to avoid watering on windy days. Uh, it kind of loses effectiveness. Um, another thing, too, is, uh, you know, try not to water your sidewalk. Uh, a lot of people will place uh, sprinklers <laughs> and, 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 you know, they're watering their, their driveways and sidewalks. Uh, that's kind of wasted water there. Um, I guess a, a good way to estimate if your grass is ready for watering, uh, you know, once it's greened up and growing, is uh, to step on it. If the grass springs back up when you uh, move, it doesn't need any water. That's uh, a general a general approach to do that. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, and also, uh, longer grass can hold the water better. So if you can live with a little bit longer grass, a little bit less less frequent mowing, uh, that that's uh, better for uh, for water use. Yeah, better for water use, better for your lawn. From uh, Tim Muse, my friend at uh, Greenblade, uh, tells me uh, if you can keep your grass at uh, between three and four inches, it actually grows longer roots and you uh, you lessen the, the requirement for water. So uh, I'd like to see your front lawn, Tim. It sounds as though you've got uh, quite a green thumb and a, a good handle on this whole uh, lawn thing. Uh, no, I talk a good game. My, my <laughs> mom looks terrible. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for admitting that uh, with us, Tim. What are some other things that people might not think about in terms of conserving water? Well, uh, you know, you should really use a broom to clean your driveway and sidewalk instead of your hose. I know a lot of people will just hose off the driveway, that sort of thing. You should use a broom when you can. Uh, and uh, the other thing, too, is a lot of times people will have minor leaks on their hose fittings and stuff outside, and, and it's not always that obvious, but uh, a leak outside on, on your, your hoses or garden fittings, it's just as, uh, just as wasteful as a leak inside your house. Uh, just because it's not as noticeable, you should, you should check your hose fittings and, uh, and stuff like that for leaks. I know that when I'm inside the house and if I have the, the hose on outside, I can definitely hear it 
when it's running. And I maybe I just attune to these sorts of things in terms of water running within the house. But sometimes to do a little bit, of, it's a good thing, pardon me, to do a little bit of an audit on those things in terms of your toilets and your sinks and your outdoor taps to, to see if they're running when you think they're not. Yes, absolutely. That's a great idea. Uh, and, you know, you can look at watch your meter uh, where if your water meter is moving when all your fixtures are off, you, you've got you've got a leak. Um, and, you know, you know, generally just a, another point I just should get across here is that, that the citizens of Winnipeg have been very good at uh, reducing their water use. It's an uh, interesting fact. Uh, the city actually uses about the city as a whole uses about 45 percent less water than we did in 1990. That's total volume. That's not per capita. The city uses that much less water overall, even though the city's grown. That's dramatic amount. Yes, uh, you know, water conservation, low flow fixtures, uh, that sort of thing has been very effective in managing demands. Now, Tim, uh, there, you've pointed out the city has pointed out something called Xeriscape. Uh It has to do with drought resistant trees and plants. What is Xeriscape? Well, xeriscaping is, is a part of the landscaping industry that focuses on on uh, you know designing uh, uh, designing the vegetation in your yard to uh, use less water right from the get go. Uh, like uh, uh, picking plants that uh, have less water demands, uh, plants that uh, can handle more arid environments, that sort of thing. Uh, the use of gravel, river stone, that 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 kind of approach. So it's it's a very uh, very interesting and and uh, popular way to reduce uh, landscaping water use. Well, Tim, I won't enter you in any uh, horticultural uh, competitions uh, without your permission, but I want to thank you for your insight uh, this morning on this. All right. Thank you very much. Tim Shanks, Manager of Water Services for the City of Winnipeg, 814 on 680 CJOB. In Vegas, they'll actually pay you to tear up your lawn so that you don't need to water it. So that's... uh, I, don't, I know we're not at that point yet, but it's a good way to, uh, as Tim Shanks mentioned, to to save waters, to just have a maintenance-free, less lawn is better. I like the sound of that. Wow, Sammy Hagar and Van Halen all in one day. You spoil me, Jerry Richardson. Yes, I do. Well, I love you for it. Feel sorry for you because you got went to the game last night, I bet. Yeah, probably. Does he need a boost? Ah! Game seven, it'll be all be all right. It's going to play out the way it's supposed to play out. Two best teams in the NHL. People weren't expecting the Jets to win in four games, right? I mean, come on. Um, Mackling McGarry with you until 10 o'clock. Uh, lots of text messages, in fact, coming in on uh, water use oh, yeah? here in the city of Winnipeg. Big topic of conversation, of course, Tinder Dry. I'm looking through the blind here right now out to, to the, the canopy of trees at uh, maybe on Strathcona and Ashburn Street to the east of Polo Park. Are they starting to bud, Brent? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are. The, the buds are there, but uh, it almost, it looks like they're kind of struggling because they, it looks more like a like a brown than any sort of a green, right? So I'm curious to see how that's going to continue to play yeah, out. I wonder if that could really have an effect. Uh, we were talking earlier about the fact that uh, clearly mosquitoes aren't going to be an issue at this point in time. There's simply nowhere for them to live right now. I wonder if this could have an effect on uh, fighting back those beetles and the caterpillars and all the different creatures that we uh, we deal with in summertime here in Winnipeg. And uh, other folks uh, saying here with regards to yard watering, uh, we heard from Tim Shanks, City of Winnipeg, who said, you know, you want to water your lawn when it's cooler in the day. That's really a, a great idea because it evaporates. Otherwise, you're just kind of just 
not really doing any good for your lawn whatsoever. And one of our listeners said yard watering is best done in the evenings where the water can be more effective. Morning watering, especially when it's sunny and hot, most of your water evaporates much less effective. Yeah, you know what, that that's a... That's it. I've always found that kind of confusing because I have found uh, multiple spots will say watering during the day is okay. Watering, I read one thing this morning that said watering in the morning is best. Watering in evening apparently can promote fungus. Yes. So it really depends on <laughs> who you ask. Yeah. There are different uh, philosophies, which is why we uh, visit with and share a variety of different uh, points of view on this. Uh, if you've got some uh, some concerns, if you've got some suggestions on how to deal with all this dryness, uh, give us a shout. 780-6868. Shoot us a text message. GMAC at cjob.com on the email or brett at cjob.com. Have you ever driven the United States? I have not been behind the wheel. I've been in automobiles in the United States, but I always end up being a passenger. Once upon a time, they had a, they would have a gigantic sign. I remember entering Wisconsin and they reminded you, this was back in the mid to early 1990s, that in Wisconsin, we arrest speeders. <laughs> Very comforting thought as okay. you're making your way through the dairy state. Um, well, guess what? An Ontario woman was arrested in Georgia when she was told that her Ontario license was invalid Officials say it was all a misunderstanding. Global News reporter Mark Carcassole reports. Okay, I'm in the back of a police car. I'm in cuffs. Help me. Vaughn resident Emily Neald filmed this Snapchat plea to friends in Cook County, Georgia, after being arrested for having an invalid license. It started when she was driving on the I-75 to Tennessee after visiting her aunt in Florida and was pulled over for speeding. She went on to explain to me that my Ontario driver's license was not valid in the state of Georgia. So she asked for additional documentation. I do not carry my passport on me during the day, but I do have copies of it on my phone. I had a copy of my birth certificate, a copy of my Nexus card, a copy of my passport, and I offered to show her all those. At that point, she said only the original would do. And now I can't drive and I don't know what to do. I'm in Georgia. Neild's car was impounded and she was held in custody pending a June court date unless she paid a bond and various fees totaling over $900. She did pay a few hours later. The local probate court solicitor, Matthew Bennett, says there could be two reasons for her detention. One, the officer claims Neild told her she lives in Tennessee, which opens up a whole new set of rules. Neild says she specified she had lived there while attending school, but was only driving there to visit friends on April 2nd. It also could have been due to something called the non-resident violator compact, an agreement among 44 states that allows anyone charged with a minor traffic violation in any of those states to be released and pay the bond in their home state. Georgia is part of that agreement. Canada obviously is not. Eventually, with the help of friends back home and the consulate, the case was dropped. Her money is being reimbursed. The Cook County Sheriff's Office will delete all arrest records pertaining to my case. The local probate court solicitor says he dismissed the case because it fell into a gray area. However, he does advise Canadians that when you're traveling abroad anywhere, not just in the U.S., to keep physical copies of documents like your passport on you at all times, rather than just digital copies on your phone like Neil had. Now that the ordeal is all but over, there's just one more thing Neild wants. A sincere apology from the arresting officer. We were unable to contact the Cook County Sheriff's Office for an interview. Mark Carcassel, Global News.
An, an apology for what? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of understand the frustration there because she really did, did, did she need to be arrested and cuffed? No. So, but do you really think that she's, do you really think you're going to get an apology from this police officer in Georgia <laughs> who probably will never, ever even think about this woman again? The one thing I don't understand with this story is why didn't she have her passport with her, like in her purse or something like that? You know, she lives in Ontario. Like, I, I just don't, something, there's just a tiny part of it that is a little stinky to me, but you know. And she was driving lesson. to Tennessee, right? Yeah. Yeah, you'd think, like, it's one thing if when you go on vacation. you're Canadian, vaca- right? It's one thing if you go on vacation to an American destination, and then you get there, and you wander around without your passport. I don't carry my passport everywhere I go. Maybe I should. But if you're driving from state to state, I would think that that seems like a pretty natural thing you'd want to keep in on your person. In this day and age? In this day and age? Yeah. And I, I always, like, when I'm in the States, I always keep my passport with me. Uh, Jerry, you ever driven through the States? Uh, yeah, I had the opportunity to drive my stepfather's brand new uh, Porsche 911 from Ontario to <laughs> Florida. And uh, before I left, I was warned, you better make sure you're not doing any more than the exact speed limit when you're going through Georgia. Uh-huh. Because those guys will take you in until you pay the fine. That's right. So oh. yeah, my cousin so I Vinny, would, I know that wasn't in Georgia, but. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I was I was actually, when I was driving through through Georgia, I was very cognizant of what my speed was because uh, Porsche 911 is a prime target for yeah. uh, the police officers. Yeah, I think it catches a little bit of attention, not yep. just with the other drivers, right? Also with the uh, with Smokey. Absolutely, and and by the way, those things drive really nice <laughs> <laughs> on roads that uh, are actually accommodating to yes. a luxury vehicle, unlike uh, certain parts of. Uh, North America, maybe right smack dab in the middle of North America. I do not like snakes because they're a little unpredictable. And, um, uh, yeah, they're, yeah, I, I, I'm doing a terrible job pretending that I like snakes. <laughs> that is the voice of someone named Bria Foster. Uh, now, in 2014, when this video was made by National Geographic, she was from Neverville, so Bria, if you're listening, uh, thank you. And I, I know at least one person mm. who just happens to be sitting right beside me who shares your, shall we say, fright? Yeah, yeah, discomfort, uh, disdain, whichever word you would prefer <laughs> to use. <laughs> Spring is here, which means the grass is growing, and the snakes are, well, they're slithering. Every year around this time, tens of thousands of garter snakes gather at the Narciss snake dens for mating season. During this time, the dens boast the largest population of red-sided garter snakes in the world. Joining us live on 680 CJOB is Pauline Bloom. She is the regional wildlife manager with Manitoba Sustainable Development. Pauline, good morning to you. Good morning. So what is it about this particular spot in Manitoba that makes it uh, the spot with the most, the largest concentration of snakes anywhere in the world. Yeah, for sure. I think the, what it is, is the, it's all of the good things that snakes need coming together in one spot. So we have access to somewhere where they can spend the winter, which is the snake dens. Um, they go down deep into the limestone to, um, 
and the crevices and the limestone to survive the winter. And then all throughout the interlake is abundant with wetlands, marshes, and really good snake habitat and feeding habitat. So this has really become a point of interest and a tourist attraction uh, without measure almost. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. It's comparable to... um, like the numbers that we see here, I think, are comparable to seeing the migrations in the Serengeti of, of Africa. Wow. Of large mammals, right? Like for snakes, this is the only place in the world where you can see these huge concentrations of snakes all at one time. Yeah, and I was watching a video on this this morning. I referenced the National Geographic video, and it, it looks like it's quite difficult for the male snakes to find a mate. They end up with five or six of them trying to <laughs> climb on top of one female. It looks all rather uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah, the poor female, right? She just has like five, maybe 10, even more male snakes all um all kind of balled up around her. They call it a mating ball, and um they're all just fighting for that opportunity to breed with that female. So Pauline has the appreciation for uh Narciss and what goes on there uh, increased over over the years or were there times when uh the locals or others would have just assumed uh maybe try to evacuate or or eliminate the environment uh, in which these snakes thrive? Um yeah Early days when I think when the settlers were first coming to the area and settling in, especially around Inwood and the area, they noticed how many snakes there were, and they were they did try eradication programs, and um, and then I think sort of mindsets shifted and people became to appreciate it for what it was and that it could be an attraction and and then absolutely interest in the narcissist snake dens has been increasing over the decades and um you know it used to just be a dirt trail through the woods and people could go and see the snakes now we have picnic areas and viewing platforms and and can expect mm, thousands of visitors on the busiest weekends so how long is this season going to go where these snakes are all in plain sight like this uh it's usually a three to four week period so it's not overly long um it can start in the last week of April and go until sort of near the end of May. This year, because the winter kind of drew on for so long, um, the snakes are still just getting going. So they're at least a week behind, maybe a week and a half behind where they were last year. Um, But so we'll have good snake viewing until the end of May now. All right. So if someone's foolish enough to want to go come up and see these snakes, I'm kidding, of course. (laughs) How how would we get there from the city of Winnipeg, Pauline? For sure. If you go north from the perimeter on Highway 7 um, up to the town of Toulon, turn left onto Highway 17 and follow that up past the town of or the village of Narciss. And it's six kilometers past the village of Narciss. There's a very big feature sign saying Narciss Snake Dens with a big giant snake on it. <laughs> now, these dens where they live in the winter, you say they, they kind of burrow their way into the limestone. Yeah. How large are these spaces for all of these thousands of snakes? And that's something that we don't really have a good handle on because we don't know what it looks like underneath the ground. So we think that there are, well, we know there's lots of rock um, fissures and cracks, but then there's also, there might be caverns underneath. So we're not really sure where they, where they go once they're down into the rock. Um, They suspect, well, they have to go below the frost line. So they go quite deep. Um, But 
Yeah, it's we don't really know what it looks like underneath there. Well, it'll be interesting to find out uh, with uh, technology or otherwise. Uh, well, you can go down there. I'm not going down there. Yeah, <laughs> I can. I can only imagine. You know, we were watching both Brett and I the National Geographic film, which on YouTube has close to 10 million views. So people are fascinated by this. Uh, people from all over the world come to Narciss to the snake pits. They absolutely do. Yeah, we've had visitors already this year from all over the world, all over Canada, all over the states. People make special trips just to see it, right? Like it, because it is that it's a phenomenon. It's a world, uh, the world famous phenomenon that we can come and see these snakes at these densities, and you can't see that anywhere else in the world. So people all over are excited to see the snakes, and even people that don't like them still come and appreciate them. They just don't want to touch them. <laughs> Even I can concede it's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, you can still stay at a distance. You just have to watch where you're stepping. <laughs> Pauline Bloom, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB to talk snakes in Narciss. Pauline is the Super. regional wildlife manager with Manitoba Sustainable Development. What needs to be done to make Winnipeg's downtown safer. Have uh, playoff uh, parties downtown 365 days a year. <laughs> Done. Fixed. Yeah. There you go. Okay. All right. Just a nightly or nightly whiteout street party? Yeah. That's it. That's all. We don't even need to have our next guest on. Obviously, that's not practical. That question was posed <laughs> Monday at the downtown <laughs> Winnipeg Safety Summit at the RBC Convention Centre, amongst uh, two other uh, biz organizations, the Exchange and the West End Biz, the Downtown Biz. Stefano Grande is the CEO of that organization. He joins us now to find out how the conversation went and were there any new ideas to come out of this summit, Stefano? Good uh, morning, by the way. Good morning. Well, your idea uh, percolated throughout the day. Jets white whiteout party every single weekend. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, uh, for so many people, that's that's what downtown re- revitalization looks like, and it's not practical uh, on a nightly basis. But is there a way for us to try and replicate these things throughout the year, as opposed Absolutely. to once every ten years? Absolutely, and I think that's one of the key. One of the key dialogues that we were having uh, yesterday with over 150 stakeholders invited to our downtown safety summit is how how can we move our downtown safety to the next level? I think we've always said we're doing wonderful in terms of the amount of development that's occurring, the physical growth, the density. Uh, let's also uh, uh, start focusing on uh, the social and the safety side of things. And, and so one of the things that was really apparent is uh, you know, people, uh, despite the drop in crime, people still feel unsafe in our downtown. And as long as people feel unsafe, uh, that will continue to pose problems for our downtown. And we need to continue tackling this issue. And, and, and things like festivals and events and uh, creating uh, better, pla- uh, better places for people to congregate, uh, safer places, uh, looking at SEPTED and environmental design, uh, looking at more cameras, looking at uh, just increasing overall the number of foot patrols that are downtown. And so that dialogue uh, went uh, from 8 o'clock in the morning till 3.30 in the afternoon, and it was quite, quite intense. Now, the whiteout experience, uh, you know, we've been jo- we joked here so far this morning about the fact that, well, we just do that all the time and that'll get people downtown. But it is likely, I would guess, having an effect on people who maybe have not visited downtown in quite some time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think we, uh, we just recently surveyed about 100 business members in the area. 
and we asked, are there any are there any concerns that are emerging out of this uh, street party? And, and response, overwhelming response was no. No one, uh, no one is concerned about parking. No one is concerned about uh, safety. Uh, so what happens when, uh, when you create opportunities for people to congregate, whether it's a street party uh, celebrating the Jets in the playoffs or whether it's celebrating culture or art or music, uh, people feel safe. Uh, people want to come. Those are the reasons uh, that attract, particularly the suburbanites, to our downtown. And when they're downtown, they, they start to understand that, hmm, you know what? Uh, it's a great place. Things are changing. Uh, businesses are starting up, and that's part of you know part of the strategy behind uh, the things that we do, such as the farmers market or Manifest or the concert series in our downtown. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we let out a call for proposals asking event organizers to bring their events to the downtown, and we're, and we're seating uh, dozens and dozens of events. So, so that needs to continue. If anything, that needs to be amplified in our downtown as well. Stefano, how ironic is it that you have an event like? What we've seen uh, one, two, three, six times now in downtown Winnipeg in the last month, where the amount of parking, on-street parking, is reduced, your access to at least one of the major parkades in the downtown is reduced, your transit activity is dramatically altered based on reroutes and detours in the downtown, and really, we've never seen that many people congregate in that section of downtown since the day of uh, the Glen Murray's uh, Portage and Main Street parties. Yeah, yeah, you nailed it. And I think as we get closer and closer to the uh, playoff, playoff Stanley Cup, that that uh, you know that uh, density will continue to increase. People will continue to come. And I think we've always have said. The reasons, uh, the reasons uh, have to be more powerful than the challenges, but we always have to manage those challenges, whether it's safety or social or even things like litter. Uh, and so, uh, again, one of, one of the things that we talked about at our summit was looking at both those sides, uh, looking at how we can generate more uh, pop-up activity, how we can attract more uh, festivals and events in our downtown, how we can light up our back alleys in a creative and, and fun way, uh, how we can eliminate places that are sore spots for crime, like uh, the police chief uh, spoke uh, very eloquently in the morning and, and talked about it's time it's time for our community to rid ourselves of that bus shelter in front of Porridge Place, which is this, this negative this negative energy. It's built in such an uh, inappropriate way; it, it actually attracts crime. It's so a really going after really going after uh, those uh, minute challenges that we need to address through lighting, through environmental design improvements. Uh, and uh, continue to encourage more festivals events in, in our downtown in, in, in a fun way. Yeah, Stefano, it's funny you mentioned the, the the bus shack in front of Portage Place. I mean, I've known since I was a teenager, some uh, 25, 26 years ago, that that was a that was a no go. That was a no fly zone. I I think I have stepped foot in that bus shack exactly one time in my life uh, in my years of taking yeah. the bus. Uh, Stefano Grandi, by the way, CEO of Downtown Winnipeg Biz, joining us about to tell us about a safe a summit that was held yesterday in Winnipeg with the Exchange District and West End Biz Groups as well at RBC Convention Centre to try to figure out ways to improve downtown safety. Now, the issue of safety... Uh, it's not there. There's a lot more kind of at play right now, right? It's not just about getting more police officers. You have referenced a couple of times social issues, uh, particularly when it comes to think to addiction. It's not just you know this isn't uh, we can't just grab someone who's have who has problems and th- lock them up and throw away the key. They're, they need they need help. 
Uh, we know that doesn't work. We know that doesn't work. And, and uh, you know, we had two speakers that spoke about how, how we can do more in our downtown in addressing those social challenges, which do percolate at times into that social disorder, the, you know, the petty crimes, the smash and grabs. And, and the presence of that, those social challenges is what really uh, challenges Winnipeggers uh, when we see that in our downtown. And so, I mean, groups like the Bear Clan, uh, this Indigenous approach to po- uh, po- policing, uh, which is a very socially inclusive, community-driven, uh, uh, we can do more with our Indigenous community, working hand-in-hand with our cadets, our, our watch. Uh, we had uh, the DOPE program from Calgary come talk to us about how they're actually uh, over the last 13 years, I've had a significant presence of outreach workers uh, in the downtown and uh, have uh, really pursued uh, some different approaches to dealing with people with addictions, looking at managed uh, alcohol programs, looking at safe injection sites. Uh, these are things that uh, you're starting to hear more and more about in our, in our community uh, and our agencies, including the downtown biz, moving in that direction. And so trying to align all of our resources, trying to find those, those points of collaboration, trying to find those dollars for us to move in that direction is, is something that's really important. And, uh, and, and those two presentations uh, uh, yesterday uh, was uh, very well received by, by, by the stakeholders. And so part of what we want to do is look at all these ideas. How our stakeholders are helping us prioritize these ideas. Uh, we're very fortunate that the city has allocated some dollars for some quick implementation of some of these initiatives. And our process is going to inform the city in terms of what we can do immediately to start moving uh, a little bit more aggressively uh, in, in this area. And I think, you know, and I think putting out the challenge also to the province and to, and to our federal government, uh, let's all collaborate. Can we, can we look at the dollars that the city's assembling and, and create something significant, perhaps you know, perhaps a, uh, a much broader social uh, safety plan uh, that can be uh, accessed by the community over the next three to five years and, and really move us forward in an aggressive way. The resurgence of the downtown started with tens of millions of dollars of public investment in a variety of different uh, a variety of different projects, including the now Bell MTS Place, uh, Red River College on Princess. And now we're seeing tens of million dollars of private investment in the downtown. And I really believe, Stefano, that we're on the precipice of some great things in the downtown. But I'm going to reiterate to you, and you use the word perception, if people have the perception of feeling unsafe, that is going to be how they feel about downtown overall. It's got to be clean in terms of the streets. It's got to be working and functional and you know, by goodness, there has to be uh, a, 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 a way to, to overcome the, the, the panhandling situation. I know it's a big issue, but uh, good on you for, for meeting and to try and come up with a solution to these things. But we got to let you go. We'll continue the conversation uh, down the road. It's not going anywhere fast. Right on. Thank you for being part of that conversation as well. We appreciate it. All right, Stefano. Thank you very much. Stefano Grande, CEO, Downtown Winnipeg Biz. More Daft Punk. Sorry. Greg's doing the robot right now. He's getting ready to go around the world. We are hip. We know songs. We know songs. That are current. Yes. Not. <laughs> hey, we do, I do know a few. One or two new, new musical don't. selections. This is not new. Hey, you and I, I had like this. It. We were having this conversation off the air. Well, we have lots of them. Um... I just had six Oreo cookies and a Coke. 
Yeah. I should have had that earlier. <laughs> Can't wait for the sugar crash. It's going to be hard. Oh, boy. And you know what? I've been doing so good. I've been doing so well on the food lately. I went into our jock lounge yep. here at uh, Chorus Radio Winnipeg, right by our friends at Power 97. Yep. And so we've got that vending machine, right? Yep. So I put the money in. And I, I saw you with the Diet Coke. I go, oh, I could go for a real Coke because okay. I drink tea in the morning. Yeah. So I put my toonie in, and it's a dollar twenty-five <clears throat> for a can of Coke. Well, and this thing's just saying you have a seventy-five cent credit, and it's like, are you gonna give me my seventy-five cent? I'm talking to this machine, and so it's gonna talk back. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess it's not gonna give me back the seventy-five cents. So now I'm scanning the machine to see what else. I got to top it up, I guess, to get something else. <laughs> so then the Oreo cookies were screaming at me. So I put in another 50 cents. So then I got my Coke and six Oreo cookies. Did you push the coin return button? No. That's how you get your money back. No, no, no. But I already bought the Coke. Is that how I get my change for yeah. the Coke? Oh, dang. That's how it returns your coins. Well, I thought that was just like if you change your mind, right? The whole coin return thing. I didn't know that's how it gives you your change. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's nice to see you're having a nice vegan meal, though. Is that vegan? Absolutely. I can hang out with you now. That's right. I can breathe on you even. <laughs> Why do Fantastic. Oreo cookies count as vegan? Because there's nothing natural in them. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So we were talking about our uh, snacks and our snack habits, and then we we're like, is there volcano insurance? As we're watching CNN here in the studio going... Oh, I'm listening to Jeff Braun's news, right? Mm -hmm. The whole idea is there volcano insurance. So I looked it up. With homes destroyed and lava spraying into a Hawaiian neighborhood, the concern for many homeowners is, will the damage be covered? That really depends on the homeowner's insurance policy and how the home was damaged. But there's no such thing as volcano insurance or lava flow insurance, said Jerry Bump, Chief Deputy Insurance Commissioner at the Hawaii Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs. It's such a, such a specialty and so infrequent that it's not available. However, damage could be covered if the homeowner had purchased a policy that covers all risk, but that kind of coverage is rare, hard to find, and might be very expensive, Bump told CNN. It's unclear if any of the affected residents on the big island has that kind of coverage. Yeah, that's, that's, if, I, if I were inclined to purchase a home in an area like that, where volcano volcanic activity isn't just a thing of myth like it like really for me like the idea of a volcano fissure cracking on portage avenue or something that's just that's that's cookie right. talk of course but in in hawaii it's very much a real thing mm -hmm. i would probably be inclined to seek out whatever kind of insurance i could get even if it is super expensive and even if they told and if they told you no no like we don't sell that then you're like, well, okay, well, I'm rolling the dice here to live in paradise, which is really what a lot of people seem to be doing. Yeah. It's a trade-off. Yeah, it is. It's just like if you, whether you live in Tornado Alley or you live in Florida. Where or a floodplain. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right. That's true. <laughs> it's always hard to look down our noses at people that no, live in well, dangerous I'm places, right? No, I'm not looking right? down anyone. No, no, I know. In terms of choices, right? Yeah. Of, of where to live and whether you can get insurance or not. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know that, uh, and tornadoes keep coming closer and closer to Winnipeg every That's year. true. That's really true. So it's probably a matter of time before one decides to go through the city. Are you betting? Are you betting type? 
I like to play the lotto, but yeah. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a gambler. I don't. I stay away from VLTs. I stay away from the. Well, I enjoy going to the track, but I usually don't put a lot of money down, two or three bucks. We had Eddie Olchuk on mm. the program a couple of weeks ago in the lead up to uh, Jets playoffs. Yep. Eddie Olchuk, an expert uh, horse better and horse owner. He was part of NBC's coverage of the Kentucky Derby. And this story now comes to us uh, from our national online journalist at Global News, Rebecca Joseph. A woman wins... $1.2 million U.S. after betting $18 at the Kentucky Derby. Wow. Yeah. Suddenly that makes what I sound, what I said just not so bad, where I said maybe I'll spend a couple of bucks, a few bucks, a handful of dollars, mm-hmm. maybe I'll try $18. So at uh, Cineboy Downs and all the tracks around uh, North America, and I think around the world, you like they do this off-bet, uh, off-track betting, mm-hmm. or you can bet on races that aren't happening at the track. This woman, Margaret Reed of uh, Austin, Texas, was at Ritama Park. I think that's how you say it, near San Antonio, Rager- Ray- wagering... On Saturday's race in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, she wagered $18 on a pick five bet, picking which horses she thought would win the Derby and the four Churchill Downs races leading up to it. Wow. Talk about lucky. Yeah, she got $1.2 million back because she picked all the winners correctly. Limousine Liberal in the Churchill Downs stakes. Maraud in the American Turf stakes. Long shot Funny Duck in the <laughs> Pat Day Mile stakes. Yoshida in the Old Forester Turf Classic Stakes, then Justify in the Kentucky Derby. Isn't that fantastic? Her winnings almost match what the horse and team won in the Derby itself, which is <laughs> $1.24 million. Not a bad day's work if you can get it. Yeah. And it was a big ticket because of the, the the long shots. The long shot Funny Duck was billed at 39 to 1 heading into its race. His uh, mudda must have been a mudda. <laughs> it was a very wet track, very muddy track at uh, the Kentucky Derby. The fastest uh, two minutes in sports, but yeah, it, was, it looked like a sloppy. A it was a sloppy track. Day. Um, I always marvel as well when you watch the horse racing, the, especially on the on a day like the Derby where they've got a full slate of races at how the announcers can follow. Because there were 20 Colts in that race. How do you know exactly who is who? I, I get that that's their job, but it's still, it just, I wouldn't be able to do well, that. Well, the colors became a non-factor, right? That's normally how they do it is by the different colors of the jockeys, but they were covered in mud Yeah, by about a third of the way into that race. Yeah, it was funny seeing the horses at the front who still looked relatively clean, and then all the horses behind them because of all the mud that was getting kicked into their face as they were being left in the dust. Yes. <laughs> Scott says, uh, Scott's been going back and forth with us all morning. We love Scott's text at 780-6868. You can purchase earthquake insurance in Manitoba. It's very inexpensive. Very inexpensive. You have a better chance of winning the lottery. Well, then I'll keep uh, keep playing the lotto. Yeah. Keep playing the lottery. All right. Keep buying that earthquake insurance. It's a really good value for your money here in Manitoba. That's all the time we have. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thanks to Behind the Glass, Jerry and Shanley Vidal. And thank you for listening to CJOB. And